The final two weeks of Lent are known as Passiontide, a season during which the penitential aspects of Lent are intensified and the remaining festive elements of our liturgies become more muted. We veil the holy images of the church. We remove the glory of patri from the mass and the offices. Passion Sunday alerts us to the imminent arrival of Holy Week, which will bring us to the day of Good Friday before the Feast of Easter begins the following night. As we approach the final days of Lent, Passion Sunday draws our attention back to what has been the point of the whole season of Lent, to prepare us to walk with Jesus to the cross as he offers himself sacrificially for the life of the world and to make us ready to receive the grace of that sacrifice. For most of human history, there would have been no notion of worship without sacrifice. To offer worship to one's God would have been understood to go hand in hand with giving something worthy of the greatness of the God and something proportional to the gravity of the petition. Unfortunately, to know whether one was meeting these conditions was often disconcertingly uncertain as we see in the sacrifices of Abel and Cain in Genesis. God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice of a lamb, and God was displeased with Cain's sacrifice of produce, calling upon Cain to imitate the sacrifice of his brother. That blood was required in a sacrifice would have been nothing new to the ancient, new, the ancient Near Eastern world. Cain's subsequent murder of Abel, though, can be seen as a corrupted caricature of the sacrifice God required, the way that sin so often creates a horrific exaggeration in order to cover the shame of offense. Abel's blood cries out to God for justice, revealing God's hatred for the murder of the innocent. Abel's blood was not Cain's to shed, and Abel's blood was not the blood that God meant to shed. And yet, this precedent is precisely what makes so perplexing the moment when Abraham is called upon to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. There, on the mountain to which the Lord led them, Abraham is brought to the point of shedding the innocent blood, of repeating Cain's sin when he is suddenly stopped. The Lord, quietly watching, provided for himself the sacrifice to himself. As we read in Genesis, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. It is of that event on that day that Jesus speaks in our gospel lesson. Quote, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. 
Jesus speaks of this event as a first-hand witness to that joy, the joy of a father who has given back his son by the substitution of the ram. That the Lord later gave to the ancient people of Israel the law to define their sacrifices was a great gift to them. It took out the guesswork of the offering, and particularly the haunting prospect of being called like Abraham to offer up a child. Unlike other peoples whose gods were much less communicative and who were much more willing to require the blood of children, the Israelites did not have to fear that they were accidentally offering the wrong thing to God. In perhaps the most significant of these prescribed offerings, the ancient Day of Atonement was a time set apart as holy in the lives of the Israelites, a day when the high priest and only the high priest would go between behind the veil to the most holy place of the tabernacle and later the temple to offer blood, a collective sacrifice on behalf of the whole people, which would atone for their sins committed in that year, to make peace and to cover them from God's wrath against sin. It was a yearly reminder of the blood guilt of Cain. It was a yearly reminder of God's severe mercy in the provision of the sacrifice to take the place of all of those sons of Abraham. Our epistle lesson this morning points to how Jesus Christ fulfills the thousands of annual sacrifices on all of the days of atonement in a single offering of himself. The blood of the God-man alone would suffice. This, after all else, was the blood that God meant to shed, his own. As the author of Hebrews writes, quote, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This means that of all the sacrifice, that all of the sacrifices required of the Israelites were signs, pointing to the great sacrifice of Christ. Innocent like Abel of the blood guilt himself, Christ the Lord would provide himself as the sacrifice in place of his brethren there again. And innocent, instead, pardon me, innocent like Abel of the blood guilt himself, Christ would redeem his murderous brethren. And as a true son of Abraham, Christ the Lord would provide himself as the sacrifice in place of the sons of Abraham again on Mount Moriah, as he had in the ancient days of Abraham, on the same mountain now known by its new name, Jerusalem. All of the sacrifices of the old world had led to this, the willing offering of Christ the victim and Christ the priest, in the spirit, once for all before the eternal father. Even though we're reminded 
every week in the liturgy of the Mass of the purpose of Christ's mission, that it has all along been to come into the world to save sinners. This is a truth that we still resist, that we still shy away from. One of the characteristic heresies of our time is that we have suppressed the sacrificial character of worship and of love. In the secular sphere, religion is regarded as another brand of self-help. We do not really want to believe that there is actual sin for which an actual redeemer needs to pay a price to buy us back. So instead, sin has to be the artifact of a morally anxious past, a way of describing the repressed psychological experiences of our inner life, or just the abstracted woes of various systems in need of some elbow grease and in need of that beloved substitute word for salvation we call progress. That a savior comes to save us at such a high cost would mean that we cannot save ourselves and that the danger, the captivity from which he comes to save us is much worse than we had imagined or want to imagine. The sight of Christ going to the sacrifice means that we are helpless of ourselves to help ourselves. It makes us small again. It makes us dependent again. To await help from someone who is greater than us. And finally, perhaps this most difficult to bear. It means that the God whose existence we sometimes wish to deny or whose character we sometimes wish to denounce, has come among us and is for us, and who is going to suffer for us out of love. It means that the awful brokenness of this world is not his doing, but ours. In our hearts is a sickness we cannot cure, we cannot even approach. And that is where he wishes to go now, to bring healing. In the modern Christian sphere, worship is now treated all too similarly, as a fixture to adorn and validate a pious and curated life. Even the artifacts of sacrifice can be absorbed into this self-guiding journey of vague transformation. Disciplines, penitence, And the hard-won wisdom of saints can become empty status objects by which we try to cultivate our Christian brand. We can start to think that because of Jesus' sacrifice, sacrifice is no longer a part of our worship. But this is a mistake. Jesus Christ's sacrifice did not render sacrifice unnecessary. His sacrifice means that sacrifice can now be meaningful. Christ's sacrifice on the cross fulfilled all the sacrifices of the temple, but then it stamped the cosmos with the eternal character of a sacrifice worthy of God the Trinity by to be and called upon all those made in his likeness to offer a similar sacrifice, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. There is no such thing 
as a crossless Christianity. The Savior bore his cross to make it possible for us to bear ours. There is only one sacrifice that pleases God, and it is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But through our incorporation into him, through baptism and by faith, we are all called upon to offer it in him and with him as well. And that sacrifice, in the end, means to be conformed to Christ crucified in the willing offering of ourselves in love, in soul and body, through which we are redeemed, but redeemed to be made participants and partakers in his redeeming work. It means to become those people so shaped in love that we too will lay down our lives for our friends and, by God's grace, even for our enemies. The call of Passion Sunday is to fix our eyes on Christ the Savior and not to look away. We may think this is easy, but we will find ourselves in the next two weeks wanting to do anything but this. It is hard to bear the sight of how costly our salvation really is. But we must look at it, because in the vision of Christ crucified, we are also instructed in the sacrifice that makes meaningful any claim to love God and neighbor as we are commanded. We cannot be the followers of Jesus in denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him, unless we are first willing to take the time and to bear the sorrow and shame and humility of watching these things take place. He now enters behind the veil to make the great atonement. Like Abraham, we must await the Lord's redemption and rejoice when we see his day. For, as we read in Hebrews 9, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.